Garçon, coffee. Welcome to the Coffee and Death Sticks podcast. My name is Kevin Romani. And I'm Daniel Marchant. And we are two college buddies. We both are obsessed with film and television. Uh, We've talked about having some sort of a podcast or writing project for a long time. So this is what we've started to develop. Um, Danny and I both went to UMass together. We were there from 2008 to 2012. And... We, we, we got to know each other during our freshman year. Uh, I actually did a very creepy thing and would go on Facebook. And back, back at this point in time, you could list your favorite movies, favorite TV shows, books, whatever. And I would click to see who had all of the same movies that I had listed, uh, especially at the top. And someone who had Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back at the top and amongst others was this same name that I kept seeing, Daniel Marchand. Didn't really think much of it. Uh, And then shortly thereafter that, we had a class together and I slowly put the pieces together and realized it was the same guy. That's the kid. That's the guy. Yeah, and I think... I think... um, I know I've told you this before, but reading, we were reading essays out loud. I can't remember what the topic was, but it was something about your favorite movie or something that inspired you. And my essay was about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I could hear you reading yours. And it was about the Empire Strikes Back. And I was like, I got to talk to that guy. (laughs) And I think it's just been, you know. For sure. Yeah. I think it was love at first sight. (laughs) I think it was too. It absolutely has been. Yeah, it continued from there. Uh, we we then later both wrote for the UMass school paper, student-run paper, The Daily Collegian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny started doing that. He wrote a few movie reviews uh, before I, I started doing so uh, our junior year. And we slowly started working together in that. We, we recorded a few podcasts together at that point. We wrote a few reviews or just general uh, you know, opinion papers about film mm-hmm. together. And yeah, so we've been, we've both been uh, itching for something similar to that experience. So we, we've created this all encompassing podcast that we're really just going to be, you know, it'll be kind of news of the day. It'll be genres or older films that we're interested in. Uh, As the title may suggest with the death sticks element, we are both uh, everything inevitably comes back to star Wars. Always. Uh, So some of even this first conversation might, get into that but one area that we've both been texting back and forth a lot the past well i be well, really years but I, I at a heightened state recently is given the uncertainty of the larger type box office productions with you know theaters being closed down or you know at lower capacity right now um and you know the move that warner brothers recently announced that all of their 2021 catalog will be just direct to HBO Max as well as theaters. So they have already experimented with this from with Wonder Woman 1984 from last month, which apparently I didn't see any exact numbers, but they're apparently thrilled with the number of minutes watched that it had, um, that it did better than Soul, whatever the hell that means anymore, whatever minutes watched means. Uh, it's not like Nielsen or box office ratings these days. Uh, they all have their own internal metrics. So but but we were curious if movies with that large of a budget will continue to be made 
as frequently as they are, or if they'll scale it back, or if there'll be more of this model. And we've also looked at the filmmakers making these movies. Uh, So that had us take a look back at, you know, some large, you know, big name directors in their first films and sort of what their trajectory led to versus the current template and what that sometimes looks like today. And we'll get into a few modern examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So Danny, what were, who were some of the people? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as a, as a listener would guess from two people whose favorite movies are Indiana Jones and star Wars. Like we grew up on these big, these big movies by these directors who these movies made the reputation. And we became friends at a time when uh, movies got bigger, more expensive, more superhero movies. Um, that kind of was the beginning. I think at the time as, you know, college kids, we were probably just like awesome, more big blockbusters for us to enjoy. And now here we are 10 years later and you've got things like, it's not about how many people bought tickets. It's how many, how long, how many minutes our movie was viewed by people. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's such a, it's such a shift in, in, at least for, for mainstream big blockbuster movies, how it's how it's all um, ingested by the public, and it makes me think like you know we t- you know a director like Ridley Scott, his first movie was he was I believe he was forty or you know just over forty when he made his very first film. Um, it was like a little period piece, and he went on to make these big sci-fi epics that have influenced so many other directors. And these are the, these, this generation of directors, they get picked up by um, the big studios to helm a first entry in one of their franchises or a reboot in one of their franchises. The logic being, well, you know, Ridley Scott started off with a, you know, with a big movie uh, James Cameron started off with a big movie, but I think I think studios forget that they had whole almost whole careers before that, before they made that first big movie. Ridley Scott made, you know, a hundred or so commercials before he made The Duelists, before he made Alien. And now you have situations like Gareth Edwards, who made one little sort of small budget film, and then they immediately asked him to helm the first entry in, I don't know what they call it, the the new monster movies, Godzilla, Khan Skull Island, and then this upcoming Godzilla. The Monsterverse. The Monsterverse, whatever you want to call it. And it's like, it's all, they get, it's all riding on this, just this, you know, it's his, it's only his second movie. Um, mm-hmm. He made his first movie by himself. And then his second movie is a Godzilla reboot. The last American Godzilla before that is the uh, Roland Emmerich one that nobody likes. So he's making, you know, people are already skeptical of American Godzilla movies. And this is the last time there was an American Godzilla movie. It was a gigantic disaster that no one enjoyed. (laughs) And like, that's the trend. And it just, that just keeps happening. And not only, so you're naming James Cameron and Ridley Scott, their second films were their, you know, big hits, mm-hmm. but they were their own creations or they were original screenplays. So, you know, Ridley Scott took a script for like a Roger Corman B movie that was alien and he made it his own yes. on a relatively small budget. 
And, you know, now the Alien franchise is this big thing uh, that keeps expanding and for worse now. uh, It's the same with James Cameron and The Terminator. You know, so The Terminator is this, you know, very famous movie. It spawned a franchise, including his own sequel to it. That was a massive, massive hit. But The Terminator was his own creation. It was a very, very low budget film. Uh, so these big directors made a name for themselves by making some of the most famous movies of all time, but they were all either, you know, original ideas or at best based off of a book, like another name that came up with Spielberg with Jaws, Mm -hmm. you know, so similar to Ridley Scott, he had done so much television directing and he had made one feature film, the Sugarland Express, that was a modest hit. So he wasn't just some, you know, rookie filmmaker. He certainly knew what he was doing. And he was given a film that was, you know, had a fairly popular book, but it wasn't like the Jurassic World reboot well, or, even, even you know, The Force Awakens. Almost. You know, the idea of, of, a, of a big studio movie being an adaptation of the number one best-selling book, that's, that, that almost seems old-fashioned these days. You know, it ha- it's like the book has to be, part of a series of books like either YA novels or fantasy novels. It's we're making this adaptation because this is going to kick off um, our version of Harry Potter. Like we're going to make like 10 of these. Um, And the idea, like movies that are just adapted from the latest, you know, popular book, those are sort of mid budget movies that aren't meant to appeal to, you know, Hollywood always wants that, whatever that demographic is, you know, teenagers to middle-aged men, (laughs) they want them to go to the movies and uh, adaptations of, you know, the latest uh, bestseller aren't about superheroes and aren't uh, these sort of big high concept uh, movies. They're just, you know, maybe just an adaptation of a page turner that people really enjoyed. And it's like an anomaly. It's not. So the idea that's, you know, Spielberg's first, first big movie yes it's adapted from a book but like i don't think i don't think that would happen uh today i don't think there i don't think you a studio would adapt the equivalent of uh of a jaws and make it into a big movie yeah and and that movie did spawn you know three sequels Mm -hmm. so there ended up being a franchise out of it but that was only due to the success of the first movie there was never the anti they were never building a franchise obviously it was a different era in the 70s where there was there weren't really franchises you know you had james bond and the godfather i suppose but there wasn't this attempt to making a franchise and that's now all you're seeing uh you know really all you get are the lower level independent films or something that's bigger budget. Like you said, that's trying to create a new franchise, whether it's, and it's usually from some existing IP, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a a, a YA series or a video game series or a comic book series. And, you know, so looking at a studio like Marvel, they've been very successful, of course, but they've been approaching their filmmaking strategy, almost like a, like a television production where they have like the main head writer, that'd be Kevin Feige. And he knows what he's doing episodically with all these films. So they can kind of just plug and play whatever director they want. So the first round was more important. You know, they did establish some bigger name veteran filmmakers uh, like Kenneth Branagh and uh, Joe Johnston. And then eventually Joss Whedon, you know, John Favreau, 
so that made sense. You know, they had to really build up uh, the, this franchise from the ground. They had to establish these characters correctly. But ever since that first round, they've pretty much just picked whoever. And mm-hmm. sometimes they are some of these people we're talking about who, who've only made a film or two. But the difference there is they have a, you know, a creative voice and they've almost approached it like a television series where you have your main head writer and then you just hire whatever director off the streets to, to make that, that week's film or that week's episode, if it were TV. So that model's worked, but I think, you know, you brought up some of the other examples that haven't worked like, like with Godzilla and um, of course the DC version of, uh, of the, their universe. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's this idea that the whole, you know, this gets into I'll probably a much larger conversation about, auteur theory and like what is a direct what is a true film director like marvel those like you said that first round of movies you know those directors kind of um deployed their style i mean there's all those dutch angles in thor kenneth Branagh obviously was like oh i'm gonna enjoy this um he kind of brought his love of like shakespearean uh family dynamics uh joe johnston loves kind of throwback type movies hidalgo's like an old serial uh, the Rocketeer, of course, is very similar to Captain America. Um, but now, yeah, it's just sort of with exceptions like James Gunn and Taika Waititi. It's just, you know, we just need someone to to just direct the scenes and then we will handle the visual effects. We will handle the big spectacle and we're handling kind of all the creative decisions of where these characters are going long term. Um, we're sort of, you know, Scott Derrickson, we're going to rent out Dr. Strange to you for one movie, have fun, but you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. Make sure that you include this character and don't kill off him because we need that person, you know, down the road. Yeah. It's all Kevin Feige's vision. Uh, DC's the same. It's all for a while. It was all Zack Snyder's vision, but I think then you get into, then it comes down to a sort of like a matter of of personal taste, like people who like or dislike a director's films, Zack Snyder had a very specific approach of how he views these characters. And for the most part, I think people have responded negatively. So it's almost like this, you know, he's, he made a, he made a couple of smaller movies and then was handed the keys to a big superhero franchise. Um, uh, I think Dawn of the Dead, 300, um, Sucker Punch, I think, is in there. Yeah, the Watchmen, owl, the Owl movie, um, mm-hmm. Watchmen, and then they're like, "Here, okay, you're going to take the lead on our new um, DC universe. We're going to make it as a, you know, direct competition to the Marvel movies, and you're in charge. You're going to shape the course of the story." And audiences didn't really respond to it, and so the studio just, you know, just cut some loose, as if he were a first time big budget director with no sort of strong artistic voice, which is interesting. You know, they fired him as quickly as they would fire, you know, uh, if they got, you know, a rookie to make it like, look, we don't really care what you think. Right. We, we need, we need to, we need to make money with this. So who cares what your vision is? Um, I think that has to do with the fact that he is a director, not a member of the studio and Kevin Feige, Marvel, you know, Marvel studios, it's his, it's his empire, basically. Yeah, that's what's baffling about the Zack Snyder hire was when it was originally pitched, it was, you know, Christopher Nolan's take on Superman. He's just not directing it. They're trying to find a director. 
And when Snyder was selected, it was like, oh, great. He's already made, you know, a couple of decent mm-hmm. comic book adaptations. You know, uh, 300 was well received. Watchmen was a pretty faithful adaptation. Um, he certainly had his own visual style, but those graphic novels are both very stylized. So you you thought that his, you know, he, he did a good job. He, he brought his visual eye to it and he, he honored the story. So naturally I felt he would adapt to <laughs> what, what a, what a Superman movie should look like because he did a good job adapting those other two, mm-hmm. but then he stuck with more or less that same style, that same like grayish, uh, lack of energy, pessimism, and, and that is the worst approach for Man of Steel. So, so baffling that, you know, with Christopher Nolan shepherding it, that's what the result was. But then it's now, now that, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight, you look at a movie like Tenet and some of Nolan's later movies and they're pretty emotionally disconnected. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's how he wanted his Superman movie to come out. But then when he was, when Snyder, you know, he has a modest hit, I suppose, with Man of Steel, then he's given the keys to the entire kingdom of the DC universe and he completely squandered it. And now DC is, you know, they're revisiting how, what type of directors they're looking for. You know, it's like, do we go for bigger name directors and go back to more of like an auteur theory, like you said, like hire good filmmakers and let them make their own version of the film. But they're still half, you know, they're like dipping their toes in the water of, or do we follow the Marvel template and, you know, just have a cohesive series of movies and just hire your director for the day. Yeah. It's, it's it's fascinating. It's this interesting dynamic where, you know, you have the Marvel movies, which are basically visually, you know, they're exciting in terms of the story. They're appealing in terms of the characters um, obviously there's great, you know, spectacle scenes, the, the, the fight on Titan in infinity war, the fight, the battle of Wakanda, like these are kind of exciting to watch, but in terms of, um, how the films kind of look and feel, it's all sort of just kind of like a gray sort of beige concrete. It's all uniform. It's like every, you can tell that they want all of their movies to look like they are of a piece. You know, you could take a shot of, Bucky or uh, Sam, uh, the, the Falcon from the Winter Soldier, Civil War, and Infinity War. I, it, it'd be hard to tell: is this from Civil War? Is this from the Winter Soldier? Mm. So you have on that end. So it's just, just you know, kind of stick to the the in-house style. You can make a couple of decisions, but in general, we want you to make it fit with the rest of our of our work. Or someone like Zack Snyder, who is almost obsessed with the visuals to a fault all he cares about is how the how the, how it looks what you know how striking the image is he's going to take the approach that he took to an alan moore graphic novel and a frank miller graphic novel and apply it to superman when that's not appropriate so you you have sort of the two ends of the spectrum it's like boring uh sort of workmanlike directors and then there's you know, the big visionary director, but it's almost like, you know, it's all uh, style and no substance and then substance and no style, if that makes sense. So it's, I think what we're both just, uh, we're missing the older days where these talented storytellers came up with their own franchises, you know, sometimes unintentionally, you know, whether it's Spielberg and Lucas with Raiders of the Lost Ark and then what Indiana Jones became, you know, we mentioned Cameron and the Terminator, 
another example uh, of filmmakers who had only made one movie, uh, the Wachowskis when they made mm-hmm. the matrix, you know, so it's like all these groundbreaking films came from these auteurs and their own vision and creation. But now those types of, you know, uh, I suppose like medium budget to higher budget, new ideas are not, Hollywood's not gambling on those. It's either low budget independent, or we're going to reboot whatever franchise, uh, or create a new superhero series. So where do you think this is going now with the changes due to the pandemic in terms of, you know, theaters being closed and studios not maybe willing to spend as much for a uh, bigger budget movie if it might not be going to theaters or being seen uh, frequently in theaters? I think that this is going to, as, as, as I think this is going to have, I hope some sort of role in kind of allowing more, mid-budget films to be made and to sort of be uh, part of the conversation. With movie theaters, it's always, you know, what the, the big multiplex cinemas, it's this, it's, you know, there's only so many movies you can see there. And the smaller independent movies or the mid-budget movies, you see them at a independent theater if you live near one, or you watch it on a streaming service like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Right. Um, you don't see it in the theater. You experience whole movies have are, you know, movies that are just as much a cultural phenomenon as a big uh, box office movie, but it's all because people just have watched it on Netflix and really enjoyed it. So I think that studios are going to, I I think it's almost, they're going to dedicate movie theaters to almost exclusively the big movies that they know that will appeal to everyone. A big superhero movie, um, a big... um, something like the greatest showman, like a big happy musical starring, you know, an incredibly famous person. Directors will be able to get their smaller, more original ideas out into the sort of the zeitgeist, but it'll be through streaming services, which I'm sure is frustrating for people who grew up and want to see their movie on the big screen. But as you said, it's all drowned out by the need to, make all of their money back in that first weekend and then some and be the, and be the most successful movie of that year of that summer. I understand, you know, Christopher Nolan, uh, Denis Villeneuve, I never know how to say his name properly. Mm -hmm. They're understandably upset. Like we don't want our movie to drop in a theater and on HBO max at the same day. We like, we don't want that. We want everyone to experience it in the big movie theater, but another director who's not as famous as they are, who's at a different point in their career, they might be like, you know what? Great. You know, no one's necessarily going to go out and see my movie if it's in a theater, but if they can watch it from home, you know, if they can just sort of uh, enjoy it by themselves, then more people, I'll get more eyes on it. So I feel like it could, it'll have a number of effects. I don't know if it'll be entirely positive or negative. But I do think it's going to prompt studios to, to to put more money into these bigger movies because that'll be, you know, mm. it's like that's what's playing at the, it's like a musical on Broadway. What's playing at, you know, the cinema? Do, do you think for the next few years, even the bigger budget things that they might scale down the budget and the quality of the visual effects, knowing that a number of the films could just be going right to streaming or simultaneous streaming? Like, do they... 
you know, we're still going to make these franchise movies, but maybe we skim back a bit on how much money we're putting into them because we know that not as many people are seeing them on that big screen where they can, you know, uh, maybe not notice as many flaws when it's on a smaller TV. Probably. That's actually a good point. Like, they might not do that immediately, but yeah, as time goes on and they maybe start to see, I mean, it's it's really going to even make it even, um, make sort of film reviews even less... Uh, they'll play even less of a role than they already do in, in sure. you know, what, whether a movie does well or not. Um, and they might just decide, hey, look, no one cares what the reviews say and no one cares that the special effects look bad. They're all watching it. On the next one, let's just, you know, take a little money off the top and save it for something else. I think mm-hmm. you're probably right. <laughs> that line of thinking almost, it's like movies have become so um, loud and a lot of movies have become you know, very stupid, very poor scripts, you know, your, your line of thinking of like, Oh, we'll just skimp on the special effects. Like that's almost a future where movies are even louder and dumber, (laughs) but now cheaper looking. Um, I'm also just thinking of any studio head who's more, you know, coming at it from a business perspective and they don't care as much about the quality. You know, it's just like any, any office trying to cut down costs and, uh, you know, in a way, you know, I, I like some movies that have more scaled back settings, like some of the uh, uh, not uh, uh, scaled back in terms of like the third act, you know, mm. uh, for some of the superhero films, or big franchise movies. Uh, we talked recently about Birds of Prey and, you know, that third act is in uh, a clown house and, you know, it fits the purpose of the story. It's not. It, you know, you're only caring about the characters in that moment. There isn't some like end of the world uh, doomsday device about to go off somewhere. So the the spectacle being, you know, dropped down a bit could benefit, but only if it's in service of the story. I, my fear is that they still go for the same third act type, you know, big fights or whatever, and then just, you know, cheap out when it comes to the visual effects when they're actually needed. Yeah, I mean, it's- that's my cynical look at it. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong to be cynical about it. Um, yeah, I just think that the line between films always been like, it's art, it's, you know, it's an art form and it is a business. Like going back to Ruby Scott, he's always been very open about the fact that he's happy to cut things for the studio, but that's because he embraced the DVD uh, home media format. And he's like, that's fine. I understand you want to cut for the theatrical release, but I'll put it all back in and I'll, people will buy it on DVD. And this might almost become sort of a new version of that. None of the studios wanted to back my little sort of independent movie, but Netflix bought it. And I'm, yeah. the people the people who wanted to see it saw it. And the people who didn't want to see it didn't see it, which almost makes it like, who cares who, if who, who doesn't like it? The people that wanted to watch it and enjoy it were able to access it. But at the same time, you could have these bigger movies just becoming, you know, who cares who's directing it? Who cares what's even happening in the movie? The point is get a movie and get it into a movie theater and just make money. And I think that's, I I can see that happening where the big blockbuster movies become even more watered down and simpler and pandering than they already are because it's just about filling seats and having something playing basically. Another potential positive sort of stemming off of what you've said about, you know, finding an audience on some of the streaming services. If 
would be for some of these poor filmmakers. Uh, we named a few of them, like uh, Gareth Edwards, or I'm also thinking of Josh Trank, uh, who, of course, had the, you know, he made the modestly budgeted quasi superhero movie Chronicle, is then given immediately here is the franchise, uh, the Fantastic Four franchise, and he squandered it, slash studio interference, whatever. Um, you know, Josh Boone just went through a similar experience yeah. with. Uh, the new mutants. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see if these filmmakers who, you know, they're not bad filmmakers. They just, you know, they were hired for their success on one or two smaller movies, mm -hmm. but then had to deal with studio executives and whatever compromises they wanted to make. And some of them struggled with it in different ways. Some, you know, some like Josh Trank melted down, others just went with it, but then their vision got kind of lost. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they can sort of not redeem, but just like go back to what they were originally doing. And if, you know, a modestly budgeted straight to streaming movie is a way for them to go back to what they originally intended on doing before they were tempted with, you know, here's Godzilla, here's fantastic four, here's the new mutants. Yeah. And it's, it's part of that ongoing conversation of like, what is it? What is a real movie? What's cinema as Martin Scorsese would call it. Like, you know, Martin Scorsese. Yeah, not a roller coaster. But The Irishman, Netflix. Most people saw The Irishman mm -hmm. via Netflix. They didn't go to the movie theater to see it. So, you know, mm -hmm. he, he's sort of, the, I don't think he thinks of himself as the arbiter of cinema. But, you know, he, um, he he made those comments that it feels like you're watching a roller coaster ride, not an actual film. But he he didn't doesn't seem to have a sort of hang up about uh, streaming or, or, you know, people accessing the film in different ways. That's probably because he watches movies, I think probably from dawn to dusk every day of his life. And he obviously can't be spending all of that time in a movie theater. So maybe he just respects the idea of just, sure. you, you see the movie where, the way you see the movie, but going back to people like Josh Trank and, um, is, are they both Josh, Josh Trank and Josh Boone and Josh Boone. They're yep. both named Josh. That's funny. At the same time, though, like you, you get this guy who's made a, a little sort of neat deconstruction of superhero movie with Chronicle, little found footage film. And then you're like, okay, make Fantastic Four. Nobody likes the Fantastic Four. Does the Fantastic Four need <laughs> like everyone loves the comics? You know, everyone loves the idea of them. Everyone's like, this is what kicked off Marvel. This is what made Stanley's reputation. But every time a studio goes to make a movie about the fantastic four. They're like, well, let's change this and let's change that because it's the fantastic four. Like you, you can't make a movie of the fantastic four, but they have to make a movie of the fantastic four because they own the fantastic four. It's a name. People know there has to be a movie of it and it doesn't matter who's making it like, yeah, it might've done a lot better and there might not have been such a public uh, stinks around in the movie if a different director had handled it. Someone who, you know, didn't go on Twitter and basically say, like, they ruined my movie. But at the same time, like, is there some great unmade Fantastic Four movie? No. Does there need to be the number of Star Wars films that there are? No. But these things make money, and the studio is like, well, we're not going to not make <laughs> these movies. So it's almost like it's this if given a choice between taking a risk on smaller mid-budget movies or just trying to make the Fantastic Four again, they're going to make the Fantastic Four again. 
Sure. It's, it's a brand. Yeah. It's a brand. Exactly. And there is a good, a fantastic four movie. It's called the Incredibles. Well, exactly. See that. Yeah. The but, right. They, they made their own version exactly. of it. So it's like, what story? And, and I was trying to think of a way to disagree with what you were saying. And I was thinking about like guardians of the galaxy, like, who gave a fuck about the Guardians of the Galaxy, but then they made a great, you know, James Gunn made a great Guardians of the Galaxy movie, but it was a a different type of set of characters for that, yes. you know, that studio. And so it's like, no one may have known they wanted it, but they did want that movie. But as you're saying, it's like, everybody knows the Fantastic Four, it, it, they've, they've had their time and there hasn't been a correctly executed movie yet. And, you, there have been so many similar types of films that have been hits that it's like there is no need to try again. And I'm sure, you know, with Kevin Feige leading it, he could make a decent version of a Fantastic Four movie, but that's not one that anyone's really dying for except for the, you know, extreme Marvel fanatics. Um, so, yeah, it would be, like you said, I, nine out of ten times they're just going to go with the name brand. They're going to reboot it again. Um uh, they did, however, do a great job with the third attempt at Spider-Man. Uh, I love those movies. Mm. I love all the Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland and all of his inclusions. But I I think Spider-Man also has a lot more uh, going on and is relevant in many more ways than the Fantastic Four are relevant. All right. So, yeah, these are the sorts of topics that we're going to be looking at. You know, we're not only interested in specific films, both, you know, new and old, but we really like looking at the trends in Hollywood. Um you know, we used to keep track of the box office type trends, but now it'll be more streaming and just what's going to be made into uh, a movie for movie theaters versus a movie for streaming or or a four-part miniseries of a cut of a film that was already a failure and will definitely be a failure again. Um, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of what's coming up with, with HBO Max will be areas of interest for, for Danny and myself. We're, we'll be looking at the... Godzilla versus Kong movie and that entire monster verse and how that's been as its own, you know, shared universe compared to maybe something like, of course, Marvel. Um, and then later, what we really can't wait for is, as I just alluded to, the four hour Justice League Snyder cut by DC, whatever, HBO Max, whatever yes. the title is. And I think, I think yeah, that'll. Snyder's Justice League is the official is the official name which i think is appropriate zach snyder okay. zach snyder's i think it's a, yeah yeah it's um we'll see i yeah I, yeah I, I i hate that i have to watch the justice league again just to refresh myself just to see the differences um you know to try to tell what's reshoot what's yeah what was filmed at the time that they just cut and it's well, gonna be a nightmare the shorthand will be if the superheroes are acting immoral, selfish, or like monsters. <laughs> that's probably the Zack Snyder stuff. Um, I, I, it is my most anticipated movie of the year, <laughs> even though I'm going to hate it. It's just because there's just something about, I don't like his style, I don't like his approach, and yet I always enjoy his films in a very perverse way. <laughs> we, we both have that same feeling with Batman v Superman. And that's something we've discussed too, yes. as a potential commentary track. So, because there is a lot to say five years later, it's still, wow. It just, wow. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, we will be out soon with uh, 
some when these newer HBO Max movies come out, WandaVision, um, talks about the X-Men series. So we will be back. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't want to sell you death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life.